everyone, it's Thursday, December 31st, 2020, and you're listening to an episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I am your host, Brad Like, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. On today's episode, it's a bit of a long one. I'll warn you ahead of time, we're talking about the good car stuff, the bad car stuff, and just some general kind of in-betweeny things uh, down at the very end of the episode. So uh, don't hesitate to skip around if you're bored about me rambling about whatever, but hey, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Yeah, you know, hey, it's me, Brad, and you can... Listen to these episodes on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Why not hit that subscribe button? If you hear something you like, share it with your friends, maybe your family. I don't know if you're in that kind of relationship. I know I'm not, so maybe you're not either. Who knows? Uh, You can follow along with me uh, on twitter.com slash Iceman. That's Y-S-S-M-A-N, where uh, we do stuff on Weird Car Twitter. We also talk about movies and video games on occasion, but it's usually car-related. Big surprise having a show like this. Anyway, guys, uh, we're going to get right into some of the good car discussions after the break, uh, and uh, we'll see you in just a moment. Well, kicking things off in a review of 2020, uh, we're going to talk about some positives and uh, some negatives and we'll stick with the positives here in this first segment Uh, and I want to kick things off with Chevrolet. Uh, Chevrolet has had an interesting year in two polar opposite categories. Uh, The first of which is the Trailblazer uh, subcompact crossover. The Trailblazer uh, really didn't necessarily seem to come out of nowhere, um, but it's filled an interesting place in the Chevrolet lineup uh, that <laughs> kind of hurts me a little bit uh, to to re- recognize that maybe, yeah, okay, the Trailblazer was a good place to move to. Uh, in the lineup, it ends up replacing both uh, the Sonic and the Cruise, uh, two of the, su- the subcompact Sonic and the compact Cruise in the lineup. Uh, And as much as I had initially felt that execution may have been lacking, uh, I've really, 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 really come around on the Trailblazer in a way that I did not expect. Um, It's it's sized in a pretty decent way. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, uh, the Equinox is smaller than the Terrain. Um, and then, you know, this thing is kind of almost as big as an Equinox, but not quite. Um, I don't know. It, it just strikes this interesting balance in the Chevrolet lineup, um, that, you know, has some of the attitude from a much larger Blazer, that Camaro styling on the front and rear. Um, but it's got like this cutesy little feel to it that just seems right and the the Chevrolet design language in the interior has worked really well and uh based on a lot of reviews that I've read and videos that I've watched and many other things uh it sounds like the three-cylinder turbocharged engine when mated to the nine-speed automatic with the all-wheel drive system uh it's pretty good out on the road it's fairly confident off-road if you got the active trim um all in all you know it's a capable little car for $30,000. 
the thing is, is, you know, you see that MSRP of $30,000, $31,000 when you look at them on dealer lots, and that really seems to not be a particularly good deal uh, compared to uh, another vehicle that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, one that's got a prancing, prancing horse? Kicking horse? I don't know what you would call it. Some kind of horse on the front. Uh, nevertheless, you know, the Trailblazer, with some dealer discounts, with some GM incentives on top, uh, makes a lot of sense. And I'm really curious to know how the long-term reliability and dependability of these things are going to be. Um, you know, the, the Equinox hasn't exactly set the world on fire in terms of expectations when it comes to reliability. Um, GM seems to have built a lot of those to run 100, 120,000 miles, and then you basically junk them. Um, I would hope that this new global vehicle uh, has a little more quality and refinement built in. Um, you know, reviews have been very good, and... You know, that I think kind of shows that GM seems to be caring about this segment a little bit more uh, than maybe they would have a few short years ago. Um, the Trailblazer is also kind of replacing the Trax, which has been this strong selling weird compact crossover or subcompact crossover thing. And, you know, where the Trax, in my opinion, really failed when it came to delivering, I don't know, any sense of pleasure uh, you know, the Trailblazer seems to, seems to have it. Um, but you know, that little bottom end of the, the Chevrolet brand where there's a little bit of excitement, there's obviously some pretty large bits of excitement up at the top. And that's of course with the C8 Corvette. Uh, I was an early C8 detractor. I'm still not fully in love with the car in the way that I would have expected to be, you know, I don't know, two, three years ago, <laughs> knowing that a C8 with a mid-engine and a naturally aspirated V8 uh, would have made me. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting year for the car. Uh, production constraints um, due to the GM strikes and then COVID hitting um, really kind of put a pinch on expectations in terms of sales. Uh, there was plenty of dealer markup on them, which was kind of gross. There was all the auctioning of the cars and attempting to flip them on different websites, which was extra gross. Uh, but the truth of the matter is the C8 is an extremely competent performance car available to you for about $60,000. Um, obviously, ticking any option boxes is going to drive that thing up and cost quite a bit. But, you know, spending less than eighty. dollars on a pretty nicely equipped Corvette is going to get you a car that can hang toe-to-toe -to -toe with a Porsche 911, uh, with, you know, the Mercedes-Benz uh, GT, uh, the or I guess the AMG GT, however you want to brand it. You know, this thing's going to hold its hold its own against a, an Audi R8. I mean, this thing is a pretty quick car. You know, 550 horsepower from a naturally aspirated 6.2 liter V8 is nothing to scoff at. It's got the engine in the right place to be quick. Um, the thing that's really only let the Corvette down in a lot of instances has been, uh, you know, bad tire choices by GM. Um, that would be in the Motor Trend Performance Car of the Year, whatever branding they used this year for that. I think it was off by like five seconds a lap compared to a reasonably similarly powered uh I guess not really the Porsche, but, you know, it's off off compared to the rest of the competition by a good margin because it had street 
uh, you know, PS4 tires. And the, those those Michelins are good, but they're not as good as the, a lot of the R compound stuff that a lot of the other cars were running. And I'd be really curious to know where the Corvette would have been in that mix with the right tires on it. Uh, I've also heard complaints about some of the suspension geometry that GM used to set it up. Um, stuff about, you know, it really seems to prioritize ride quite a bit, but also, you know, not killing the Corvette dads who go out and buy these things with their jean shorts and their New Balance tennis shoes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's still sparking a bit of a change, I think, and a lot of mentalities when it comes to performance American cars. Uh, I'm still a little so-so on the looks. Uh, I've realized a lot of that seems to depend on the color of the car and what trim is on the car. Um, I, I recently saw a C8 in white with the blacked out uh, spoilers and mirror caps and front splitters, and it just did not do it for me whatsoever in any way shape or form and yet i saw you know a fairly low to mid trim uh convertible in brown over the uh late summer early fall and that that folks is where the c8 business seems to be uh that dad spec c8 uh hit all of the right buttons and that's where i think things started to click for me uh just a bit so yeah, we'll see what's going on with the C8 as we head into 2021. Uh, we've obviously got the top dog performance trim right now, which is the Z51. The Z51's been an option pack for Corvettes basically as long as I can remember. Um, it's really just, I think, like an active tune exhaust, uh, a little bit better rubber, uh, and a few more performance modes in the interior of the car. Uh, they seem to be indicating that there's a Grand Sport on its way, uh, potentially a Z06 and a Z obvious ZR1. Uh, the big question is, you know, where do you kind of go from where it's at right now? Um, personally, I would hope that GM is looking to adapt uh, the long, incredibly long rumored 5.5 liter V8 from the racing program into a street performance option. Uh, that 5.5 liter V8 would probably be a flat plane crank option, if you've heard those words before. Uh, that's because Ford had been using that in the uh, GT350 and 350R Mustang. Uh, that is going away for 2021, uh, which leaves a good opportunity for Chevrolet to kind of go, hey, we could do this too. Um, in that kind of sense, it's going to really change the power band, the output of the engine, um, it's hopefully going to let it rev a little bit more. Uh, and I think that's really kind of where it comes down to is a small displacement, high rev, naturally aspirated V8 kind of picks up where Ferrari left off with the previous uh, mid-engine V8 cars uh, and, you know, kind of goes knocking on their door and says, hey, you remember when you used to build good things? Well, yeah, we can do that. And uh, you can take your little turbocharged whatever thing and head on out of here. Uh, that would be a pretty decent, interesting way to, I think, head into things. Uh, the other guesstimate is that uh, the Corvette could receive some kind of Blackwing variant under the back deck. Um, so twin-turbocharged V8, whether or not it's going to be the smaller displacement Blackwing or some other Chevrolet-ized version of the Blackwing, uh, that seems strange i you know i don't know the black wing needs to be used in something <laughs> beyond a dead ct6 uh but i think there's some questions as to whether or not it would even fit in the back of the corvette uh 
So who knows there? You know, there's always GM's way of doing things, at least for the last two generations of Corvette, which is slap a supercharger on it. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping for a hot V turbo if they go for something to, you know, take a note from the Europeans, but keep it overhead valve. Um, and, uh, that could get pretty interesting <laughs> in terms of engineering, uh, going forward. So a lot of excitement, uh, for Corvette and for Chevrolet, I think heading into next year. Um, we're overdue for some refreshes on a pretty wide variety of their product line. Uh, but I'm feeling pretty confident about where they're heading uh, in a way that I really don't think I've felt about the brand since uh, the late aughts, early 2010s. Uh, so that's that's pretty good. Uh, the next thing on this list is another brand that I think is worth highlighting across the board, and that is Kia. Uh, Kia has had a banner year when it comes to seemingly everything. Uh, Kia and Hyundai really on the whole, and you know, I could talk for hours about how good of a job they're doing as a company, um, but really we're going to talk about two main Kias as we're talking about the positives of 2020. And uh, just like uh, Chevrolet, we'll start with a small uh, subcompact crossover, and that's the Seltos. Uh, the Seltos really seemed to kind of come out of nowhere, and I think has pre pleasantly surprised a lot of people in the same way that the Chevy Trailblazer has. And in that, it's a small but not too small, subcompact crossover um, that really comfortably seats four adults, carries a decent amount of shit in the back, uh, comes with a pretty good set of standard features, and you can tweak it in different ways to kind of make it yours. Um, where things get weird with the Celtus, I think, is the packaging stuff that they do. Um, basically, Kia builds a stripped-out version of this that comes with a four-cylinder engine and all-wheel drive system for, like, next to nothing. I think it's like mid-20-ish range, and that's really meant to be, you know, the least special, the the one to get people in the door, the people who go, oh yeah, I need all-wheel drive, uh, what do you got? And just, you know, hand them the keys, there you go, bye, see you later. Uh, then you can get the S trim, which has got, you know, the nice things that you'd probably want in a modern vehicle uh, for basically the same price. Um, you can get those same options with all-wheel drive, I think, and heated seats, I think it's like an extra like sixteen hundred bucks. Uh, that seems to me the best general way to go. Uh, you know, if you if you're trying to save a little bit of money in the Seltos world, uh, but there's a weird thing with the Seltos where like different trims have different colored interiors, and they don't really let you change the options on them too much. Uh, so like. The base trim model has like this just generic black interior that looks really not all that good. Uh, you go to the S and it gets this blue plastic cover on parts of the interior that looks really strange. And you get this blue piping on the, on the seats, which I guess is nice. But like if you don't pick the right color, it looks really strange and... It doesn't make a ton of sense. So then you step up to the EX. And by the time you get to the EX and you got the all-wheel drive system, you got whatever, you know, you're looking, you're knocking on the door 30 grand. And again, just like with the Trailblazer, the question is, can you get more for 30 grand elsewhere? And the genuine answer is yes. Uh, you know, 
it really kind of depends on where your priorities are in terms of size, in terms of equipment. Uh, I think it's insane to buy a car these days without heated seats uh, and, you know, a decently sized infotainment system. Those seem to be the bare minimums for me. Uh, beyond that, you know, radar cruise control should probably be standard these days in most cars. Uh, I don't know why it's not. So it's really kind of those three options that I shop for. And to get those in the Kia, you got to move pretty far up the line, and that's kind of annoying. Um, but that's that's the game that everybody plays right now with these cheap crossovers and SUVs, is they're trying to drive in as many people as they can into this category because you can charge a lot more for these vehicles, even though they're really not all that different from the regular sedan that's parked, you know, a couple spots away uh, on the dealer lot. And, uh, you know, it, it's... It's a weird way of doing things, I guess is is the way to say it, but uh, the Seltos really seems to hit just the right spot for me, and I think for a lot of other people. I'm starting to see a lot more of them on the street, which is usually a good sign, um, you know, versus the Trailblazer, where the Trailblazer was apparently the best-selling new car in 2020 for quite a long time during COVID in the spring and summer, um, but I don't really feel like I see nearly as many of those as the Seltos. Now, as I've said these words out into the universe, that probably means I'm going to see a million trailblazers tomorrow and later into this weekend. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's just kind of a it's a weird little segment right now, and I and I'm I'm interested to see where things shake out because we're due for a new Honda HRV. Obviously, we've got the uh, the the horse branded thing that we're going to talk about in just a minute. Uh, that's that's going to shake things up in a different way in this segment. Uh, it's. It's a cool time, I think, to be casually interested in compact and subcompact crossovers. Uh, so the other Kia I want to talk about uh, in the Kia lineup that really impressed me this year is the K5. Uh, the K5 is the replacement for the Optima. Uh, this is the part where, you know, you're allowed to get mad about them dropping the Optima name. But the truth of the matter is, in most other global markets, uh, the car is called the K5. Uh, Kia seems to be wanting to even out their global naming strategy. Um, I have a feeling that that'll probably mean that other cars in their lineup uh, will start grabbing some other K-related names in the near future. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Anyway, the K5 uh, looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, upper trim models with the LED uh, lasso headlights, the wraparound lights in the back. Uh, it's, it's just a incredible looking car uh any way you really kind of want to describe it uh kia and hyundai you know they've really stepped up their their game when it comes to uh the design department uh for the exterior the interior is looking great uh it's got really fantastic interior materials that are squishy in the right places and relatively cheap in others uh it's got a really good infotainment system standard you can get a huge ass one for a little bit extra you lose a couple features but you know hey it's it is what it is and then kia you know they did the thing uh in in the offer all-wheel drive is as an option on this car and it's left a lot of people wondering why hyundai chose not to do the same for the sonata and I think this is kind of playing into the weird relationship the two brands are going to be having going forward, where not only is there the in-house competition, you know, think of it in the way that Pontiac and Chevy used to kind of do this dance uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Hyundai and Kia seem to be having this weird dance every other car that comes out for them. Now they're going to be adding in, you know, Genesis, 
benefiting from a lot of this rivalry. They're going to have the uh, Ionic brand spinning off and doing its own thing as well. Uh, it's it's a weird time at Hyundai Kia, but you know the K5 to me really kind of. I don't know. I, I guess I feel like I've said this every every year that I've talked about this on this podcast, is that there is a Hyundai or a Kia that is a sign for how good things are getting and how much better they're going to become. And I think, you know, that last year that would have been the Telluride and the Palisade. This year it's the K5 and uh, the Sorento. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited to see where Kia goes uh, in the next couple of years, because it's it's forward thinking for a brand to not only build vehicles that are, you know, interesting and different and meet a different set of clientele's needs, they really seem to be conscious when it comes to programming on price. You know, they'll offer you a fully loaded, fully luxed out Telluride for you know knocking on the door of fifty k, uh, but at the same time they'll sell you you know a sixteen thousand dollar Rio and. They've got something for everyone, and even if you're buying that lowly Rio with not a lot of bells and whistles, you're still getting a lot more equipment than you would in a comparable anything else, because here's the other thing, uh, and we're going to talk about this more later on down the line through this episode, is that, you know, Hyundai and Kia are the only ones who are still building normal cars, uh, and that is still an important thing uh, as we head into 2021. Uh, next on the list is the, the Blue Oval brand and two really big key players uh, as we head into 2021 and two vehicles that I think were pretty hotly anticipated uh, this year. Uh, the one that I've been hinting about is, of course, the Bronco Sport. Uh, the Bronco Sport, kind of like the Seltos, like the Trailblazer, sits in this weird in-between size. Uh, the Bronco Sport is based on the same platform as the Ford Escape, but it loses uh, a good bit of space off the back end of that SUV. So even though it's technically a compact, it's a little bit smaller, but not quite a compact, um, which is weird. Uh, the cool thing about the Bronco Sport is that you can get a pretty nice one for less than 30 grand uh, that can also go off-road and be a pretty tough little truck. Um, that's not to say that the Kia Seltos and the uh, Chevy Trailblazer couldn't do that, uh, but really no one else in this segment is. Uh, the closest thing that competes to the Bronco Sport uh, is the Jeep Compass, uh, and more specifically the Jeep Compass Trailhawk. Um, the Ford just really seems to have hit the mark in terms of looks. Like, it, it, it presses that... Land Rover LR3 button for me pretty hard, and uh, I really, really dig the LR3 uh, even to this day, uh, and getting something that's similar to that, at least in terms of look, uh, is pretty cool. Um, where things start to falter a bit with the Bronco Sport is, of course, you know, the usual Ford things that you'd expect. You know, there's, there's the headlines about the technology that's underneath it. Uh, they've got a lot of good things when it comes to the sight lines as you as the driver, but you get below basically uh, waist level of the seat, and the materials start getting pretty exceptionally chintzy, uh, and you start seeing a lot of the holes and gaps where uh, higher trim models would have some things. Uh, that's not Ford's fault. That's just the way cars are built uh, when they come from the blue oval. Uh, I don't know. I'm making excuses for it. Uh, that being said, you know, I dare you to find 
a small crossover that's going to be as capable of that for the same amount of money. Um, you know, the, the Compass Trailhawk does pretty good. Um, you would probably have to go up to the Cherokee Trailhawk to get close to what the uh, Ford Bronco Sport can do, especially in the Badlands trim. Um, but then, you know, you're throwing in a V6. You're throwing in a lot of other stuff, and it's slightly bigger, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a Fiat Chrysler product. Excuse me, Stellantis product. Uh, and the quality and reliability is, uh, you know, 17 question marks long. Um, I would definitely trust this Ford to hold up a little bit better long term. Uh, but, you know, that's based on zero facts and zero evidence uh, that that's actually the case. Uh, the weird thing for the Bronco, at least for me, is that, you know, they're still offering this uh, in the two different engines with the multitude of different trims. And it's really not clear to me what's good and what's not. That being said, you know, almost no one has seen a Bronco Sport in person. Uh, apparently, the local Ford dealer here in Grand Rapids has received several, um, but almost all of them have been spoken for, and as such, almost none of them have been on the lot or in the showroom uh, for any normal Joe Schmo to go in and take a look at one. I would really be interested to see what... What is the trim level called? Select? It's not select. Uh... I hate I hate the, when they have words for all the trims. It really makes it difficult for me to remember which is which. It's the one below the the big bend, uh, or was it big bend? I don't. I don't anyway, eh, mm, outer banks. That's the trim I'm thinking of. It's below that one. Whatever that one is. Anyway, I would be interested to see where the differences are between each because you know a basic Bronco Sport really strikes at the value quotient for me, especially when you consider that it's getting, you know, a turbocharged three-cylinder engine that makes a pretty good amount of power. I think it's like 160. Um, it's got a really good four-wheel drive system, or excuse me, all-wheel drive system out of the box. Uh, really, it becomes a trim thing. You know, what kind of material do you want covering your seats? Do you want heated seats? Uh, do you need any extra other little fancy things when it comes to off-roading or infotainmenting? Uh, and... In the end, you know, you, you get to kind of make it yours because Ford is taking a couple pages from Jeep when it comes to the Bronco Sport and eventually the Bronco when it comes out later next year and that, you know, they're designing these to be customized uh, to high heaven, just like the various Jeep add-ons that you can get, uh, you know, for the Wrangler, for the Cherokee, for the Grand Cherokee, and so on. So, um, yeah, they really seem to have figured it out and I'm really excited to see one of these in person. Uh, I... I don't know. If I had money, I think that would probably be where I'd go with my quote-unquote subcompact crossover dollars. Um, even if it is a little more chintzy on the inside, I think having that physical attitude goes a long way. Uh, it comes in colors, which I think is really cool. Uh, and, you know, it's got that off-road chops. And I think that's really a main selling point, is that it can do things that other crossovers can't while still being civilized on the street. And, yeah, I mean, the, the Jeep Cherokee and the Compass, you know, can do that, relatively speaking, but at least the Ford looks better. I don't know. That's where I'm at on that. Uh, the other blue oval thing I want to talk about is the Mustang Mach-E, which also doesn't have a blue oval on it anywhere. Well, I guess the Bronco Sport has one. Nevertheless, the Mach-E has been long awaited. It's been much derided, and I'm here to say that I think without a doubt, it's the best way that you could spend about $40,000 on an electric crossover uh, right now. Uh, these things are starting to be delivered, so that's why we're talking about it here in 2020. Um, if you've been living under a rock, the Mach-E is 
uh, an electric crossover from Ford that kind of looks like a Mustang. Uh, it's got Mustang-ish lights on the front, it's got Mustang-ish lights on the back, and once you get inside, there's no way to tell, other than a few badges that seem to suggest that it's Mustang-related. Um, there was a story, I think it was in the Free Press, free press the other day, I think it was reported online, about how uh, basically Ford had this crossover pretty much fully designed and ready to go, and it sounds like uh, Hackett, who uh, was the former CEO of Ford, um, and uh, the new guy, Jim Farley, kind of came together and decided that what they were coming up with really wasn't going to work going forward. It just didn't have the look, it didn't have the feel of something special from Ford, and they were kind of learning a little bit from, you know, where the Focus Electric failed. Now, I can name some pretty specific reasons why the Focus Electric failed, and I think number one is all of the cargo space disappeared, uh, but also, you know, the car just didn't feel special for the f almost $50,000 price tag that it had, um, but the Mach-E, for dollars to $50,000, you know, you're getting a lot of car for the money. It's got a lot of really good standard features. Uh, it, I think it really looks cool. It's definitely right sized. And I think the really big upside to it compared to Tesla, it's, it's a twofold thing. One, the Mach-E looks significantly better than a Tesla Model Y. Uh, I still do not like how the Model Y looks. Yes, it is basically a Model 3, um, but like overinflated. Um, it, it just does not work. It looks like a bullfrog. It's just mm, not for me. Uh, the second thing is, you know, the Ford won't fall apart. Uh, it's actually made with some pretty decent build quality. And again, in 2020, that goes a long way. Uh, but the Mach-E, you know, I think where some of the failures are already at in the early tests seem to be indicating that the Mach-E doesn't exactly have the range advantage that some people thought that it might have. Um, TFL has theirs on loan and they're kind of trickling out the video content uh this week and uh the first little drive that they did with it compared to the mock or excuse me the model y was that the maki uh despite having a uh pretty healthy charge i think it was like 89 percent charge um it only had like 112 miles of range um now granted they're in colorado it was like 20 some odd degrees outside. They were running, you know, pretty heavy duty uh, heating elements. And uh, the Mach-E does not have a heat pump, which I did not realize and seems like a pretty grave mistake on behalf of Ford. That being said, uh, you know, GM has built several electric vehicles that also did not have heat pumps, including, as I raise my hand, my Chevrolet Volt. Um, and it kind of seems inexcusable in 2020 that they're not doing the heat pump from the outset. Uh, I do understand that it is a little more expensive, but I think to have that range advantage uh, by being able to use this thing uh, in the wintertime is going to do well because the Ford Ma or the Mach-E is going to sell well in northern states. It's because there's a blue oval on it. You know, it's going to have that kind of brand attachment, and I think that is really important. Uh, that being said, you know, you can buy a version of the Mach-E with a long-range battery and rear-wheel drive. I think it's the premium trim. It's the next step up from the base. Uh, that one has about 300 miles of electric range uh, as certified by the EPA. That's not half bad. I'd be curious to know what it is in the wintertime. Um, you know, with my Volt, I'm seeing, you know, the 25-plus the percent 
drivetrain losses in the wintertime because it's working hard to heat my car, uh, I would imagine it's probably pretty close to the same for the Mustang. So you end up losing, uh, you know, a pretty significant amount of mileage in that regard. And, you know, again, that's that's not nothing uh, when it kind of comes down to it. So, yeah, I don't know, but... It, it kind of is what it is, and I think it's definitely a good first effort, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Uh, now, sticking with EVs for a moment, uh, one that I did want to highlight, and one that really kind of seemed to come and go when it came to news this year, uh, is the Polestar 2. Uh, the Polestar 2 is the second uh, release from the Polestar brand, which is spun off from Volvo. Um, basically, in some parts of the country, you're going to be able to go to a Polestar showroom and buy a Polestar vehicle, and others... Uh, like here in Michigan, at least so far right now, uh, you go to the Volvo dealer to buy a Polestar, which is not a good way to roll things out. Uh, nevertheless, the Polestar 2 is meant to be the Tesla Model 3 competitor um, from the Volvo sub-brand. Uh, Polestar really, I think, hit the right note when it came to sizing the vehicle, giving it a little bit more of a higher ride height. Um, they seem to price it pretty competitively competitively it is a little bit more expensive than a model uh three but you know again just like with the maki uh you're getting much much better build quality you've got a network of dealers that can service it in theory uh in the united states and in the end it just seems like a better overall vehicle uh, i'm really going to be interested to see where resale values go on these over the next couple of years, uh, mainly because, like I said, Polestar really doesn't exist as a brand in the United States in a lot of people's eyes. And yeah, as much as it's being sold from Volvo dealers, uh, without that brand attachment, you know, where where do those dollars slip away uh, as things go on? Uh, I'm definitely going to be interested to see too how this uh, Android-based navigation infotainment system works out. Uh, Polestar is the first brand to release. A vehicle uh, that's based entirely on Android. I think Fiat Chrysler, excuse me, Stellantis is the second uh, with the new uh, Pacifica uh, minivan. Uh, but the Polestar, man, it looks slick. The way that it looks, the way it works, uh, all those things. Uh, it 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 definitely is a little bit more of a techie car. Uh, but yeah, I mean, right shape, right price. Assuming you can get your hands on one, uh, it seems like a smart way to spend fifty to sixty thousand uh, dollars in the EV market these days. Uh, you know, generally speaking, it seems like the new benchmark uh, seems to be somewhere between two hundred fifty to three hundred miles uh, for less than sixty grand. It seems to be pretty achievable by most senses of measure, stretches of measure, however you want to say that. Um, but yeah, I yeah, the Polestar. I mean. It's just weird. It's weird how it came out. There was a lot of fanfare about it, and then it just kind of all went away. And I don't know what it was. This has been a weird year, so I'll give it that exception. But uh, I'm hoping there can be some more talk about the car as we head into 2021, uh, because it's definitely something that deserves some attention. And then speaking of another vehicle that kind of came out and went away, uh, that's the Toyota Venza. Uh, the Toyota Venza is... Well, returning to the American market for the first time since, what, 2015, 16-ish? Somewhere around there. I always forget what year it went away. This new one is, uh, by all accounts, a very good crossover. 
Uh, it is the import of the Japanese market Harrier, which is interesting because that's the vehicle that was imported initially to be the Lexus RX 300. Uh, this new version is sold only as a hybrid in the United States, so it's using the very well-known 2.5-liter inline-floor mated to Toyota's hybrid synergy drive. Uh, that same system is uh, now an e-all-wheel drive system, so it's using the gasoline motor and the hybrid system to power the front wheels, and then they're, uh, through the use of the battery, can power a rear electric motor uh, mounted on the rear axle that can, I think, work... I think it's like up to like eight miles an hour something like that basically it's mostly being used from a standstill to get you going and then apparently there's some different configurations where it can help do some turning uh at speed in other situations uh but the venza you know hits this weird spot where it's it's based on the same platform as the rav4 um it is using the same powertrain as the rav4 hybrid um, but it takes a really big step up in terms of style and refinement and technology uh, that the RAV4 doesn't have. And the RAV4 is, of course, the best-selling vehicle in the United States that's not a pickup truck. And the Venza, you know, I don't know. In my mind, it's it's near enough perfect. Uh, you know, I, I could have some 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 wiggles on some of the content that they put in in different trim levels. I could have some wiggles when it comes to actual all-out fuel economy. It's not quite as good as what it probably should have been. Uh, and I think there's a little bit of a packaging complaint where, you know, they should have made the RAV4 prime the Venza. Uh, mm, you know, weird Toyota things. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I mean, it... For the money, for the mid thirty to $40,000 range... Uh, I think there are worse things you could buy. Um, there are certainly worse things you could buy with a Toyota badge on the front. Um, you know, you, you do make some compromises when it comes to uh, space, uh, is a nice way to put it, uh, by picking the swoopy Venza. Uh, but style, man, style. Style goes a long way, and so does comfort. And I think the Venza kind of leaning a little bit more into that hits this space that has really been underserved and by that i kind of mean in reference to uh kind of where the personal luxury coupe used to be where you know you're maybe not necessarily older but you've got a different sense of taste than the average car buyer and you want something that looks a little nicer and still rides nice and is comfortable but can also be sporty sporty is definitely not on the venza's list of things that it does but you know I don't know, I'm trying to think of what's a good, like, uh, the old Toyota Solara. That's a good comparison, where, you know, you could, you could get a Camry, you know, Camry's a good car, but you could get a Solara that looked a little bit better and had a little bit nicer stuff on the inside, and I, I, the Venza sits in that little spot, and I don't know, I really, 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 really like the Venza. I like it a lot. I can't afford one. But, you know, if I if I was trying to buy a nice crossover, I think spending that little bit of extra money uh, on that particular model, I think, is a smart, smart way to go. So, yeah, that just about wraps up the good of 2020. Uh, after the bump, we're going to talk about some of the bad things about this year uh, when it comes to car news and car culture. So we'll see you in just a moment. 
So, the bad stuff of 2020, and it's definitely a little bit shorter than what the good stuff was, which is probably a good thing. Uh, I think the big headline this year, at least for me, uh, as someone who's grown uh, much more deeply interested in electric vehicles and having purchased a quote-unquote electric car uh, this year, uh, being a part of the Tesla discourse has been unnerving, uh, very upsetting, uh, disappointing, aggravating, um, maddening. I, pick an adjective. I mean, it, it's been among the worst things on the internet this year. And the thing with Tesla is that it's not just about discussing car news and car culture and car whatever. It has become a financial thing. It's become a political thing. It's become so many different things. And obviously, you know, everything is politics and politics is everything. And as a political science major, I'm never going to deny that. But like, holy cow, like the stuff that happens with Tesla is like nails on a chalkboard sometimes. And I think what really gets me running when it comes to Tesla is, <sighs> what's a nice way to say this? Uh, when you get the normies involved, <laughs> uh, it, it gets tough to have an honest conversation about the brand and what they do and what they don't do. And it's, it's, it's frustrating because it's kind of the same way that you know, Donald Trump got elected president by being really loud and obnoxious about the things that he is and is not doing. And that's largely what Elon Musk has done with the brand. And, you know, I don't think I would fault any of the car stuff that he does if it didn't come with some super nasty ways of operating his business and getting people interested in his vehicles and it's just i don't know it's gross i mean they had a banner year in 2019 and 2020 um, when it came to deliveries the model 3 finally rolled out people are excited about it um you know they hit some pretty big sales numbers they largely drove you know the bmw 3 series the Mercedes-Benz C-Class and the Audi A4 out of the top spots uh, in that particular segment with that car seemingly out of nowhere and overnight. I mean, these are cars that are built in the United States by American workers uh, for a fairly decent price that compete very competitively. And, I mean, that's, that's unprecedented. I don't think I've ever seen any car company be able to say that they've done that seemingly overnight. Um... But what that has added to this is, you know, these are cars that just are not made that well. And the thing is, is when you say those words to someone, it seems to imply to them that they don't know how to do anything. And that's not necessarily the case. Tesla is a software company. They are a company that uh, has been able to engineer really interesting things through spreadsheets for these cars that have been particularly efficient, uh, have been able to add different capabilities down the road, and this is unthinkable witchcraft. You know, even 10, 15 years ago, this was unimaginable to most people. And now it's become the norm, and every car company on Earth is saying, oh, well, we can do the same thing Tesla can do, and we can already update our cars over the air. This is great. This is wonderful. This is the future. Um, but, you know, the truth is, that's 
that's what Tesla advertises, the truth of the matter is that they still have cars that, you know, have door panels that don't align. They have door handles that frequently break. They have headlights that can't be easily replaced. You get in a small fender bender and you cannot get the back end of your car fixed for months and 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 months on end. And talking about the elephant in the room has become this insane bit of infighting on the internet. And it's just, I don't know, it's it's inexcusable. I mean, it... it, it this might be overstepping some of it to some extent, but it feels like Gamergate in some ways, how people act uh, when you talk down about Tesla. And, you know, I don't think anyone who talks down about the brand wants them to fail. Nobody wants Tesla to do bad. Nobody wants Tesla to collapse because those are American workers, American engineers, American technology that is proven to not be good. And Teslas have proven over and over again that they can be very, very good. It just, you know, it just isn't there. Like, it's it's just, it's, I don't know, for every good Model 3 story that I've heard, I've heard just as many about how the car is falling apart. Same thing with the Y, same thing with the S, same thing with the X. It's been the same thing over and over again. You get into some of the older Teslas now, and they're really showing their age in terms of, you know, interior quality uh, and refinement. Uh, Tesla doesn't seem to have any plans to revamp the S or the X uh, anytime soon. It's only going to be a matter of time before the 3 and the Y start to look silly. Uh, they continue to promise all of these other products and other things that you, as an individual, can send thousands of dollars to give. You just give it to Tesla in the hope that maybe someday they might deliver a semi-truck or a roadster or a cybertruck, even though we've seen absolutely zero, zero, almost zero progress on the front of any of those uh, in terms of actually, you know, arriving uh on city streets as a thing that you can buy as a customer uh, and then see rolling down the road the next couple of days after. Um, I don't know. It's crazy. It's it's absolutely insane. And, you know, I think it's going to get a lot worse this year because of the electric pickup trucks that are going to be rolling out. Um, we have an electric F-150 that is supposed to be on the road by the end of the year. Uh, the first of the electric Hummers are supposed to be getting delivered to customers at the very end of 2021 into early 2022. Uh, Rivian is saying that this will be the year that they will start delivering their cars. Um, that, I mean, all of that. Real, tangible products that people have been able to go out and drive and test on city streets and off-road situations and many other things are things that are happening. Uh, and I don't think there's any sign from Ford or GM that they will not deliver these products uh, in the next uh, 12 to 16 months. Um, they're here. <laughs> and Tesla has not shown anything when it comes to the Cybertruck. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be in for a rude awakening when they find out that the, the Cybertruck, as it was designed or at least shown off initially, uh, is nothing like what the production vehicle will be if a production vehicle ever ends up happening. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what ramifications there will be if that's the case. It, it's going to be interesting seeing the mental gymnastics that are required to explain it. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see the financial repercussions of what happens to the stock price. I... The whole stock thing is a whole 
insane issue that I don't even know how to discuss. It's it's just beyond any any sense of natural ways in which things are supposed to work. And yeah, it it's it's just it's just insane with Tesla uh, as of late. So without droning on too much about that going forward, uh, we'll. St- kind of skip to the next thing that's been kind of weird and that is uh bring a trailer and cars and bids um yeah i you know this really seems to have kind of come out of nowhere bring a trailer's been around for the better part of a decade now and uh people have been talking about bring a trailer in a pretty positive light all these years uh simply because you know they were offering and highlighting vehicles um that were you know, very different from what you'd normally expect to see uh, in different bits of car culture. Uh, bring a trailer, you know, whether it's a Honda CRX or a Ferrari 355 or a, a, a weird Nissan pickup truck, like they've got all of it. And it's it's refreshing to see different aspects of the car world highlighted what is less refreshing is seeing the prices with which these things are being traded. Um, you know, there's been plenty of stories within the past year or so on Bring a Trailer of, you know, Toyota Supras with 20,000 miles on them going for $130,000. Uh, Honda Civics, 2000 Honda Civic Si going for over $50,000. Uh, it's insane, and it's causing... You know, some weird reactionary price increases uh, in these cars that, you know, just a few short years ago were pennies on the dollar and were largely unloved. And it's kind of introduced the speculative aspect to this class of cars that I don't think anybody would have anticipated a few short years ago. It's, it's just, it's so weird. And, you know, bring a trailer is one thing. Then you've got Cars and Bits, which is Doug DeMiro's uh, car shopping network (laughs) what what is nice about cars and bids is that the prices don't seem to be quite as big of a financial nightmare as what bring a trailer has had Um, but that being said you know it's definitely weird kind of thinking about how and i've talked about doug on this show quite a few times i mean we used to chit chat on instant messenger we used to talk uh, on the forums and different aspects years and years and years and years and years and years and years ago and you know knowing that he's making what is it, a three five whatever percent commission on the sale of each of these things that are on cars and bids it just it feels weird it feels weird thinking about it and i think it just kind of i don't know it puts stuff in a weird sense of light and that's not a bad light on doug get your money, man. Like, do it. Cash in while you can. Uh, hit strike while the iron's hot. I think I can kind of give him a pass for taking the bring a trailer model, highlighting the weird cars that Doug and many people my age are really into. Uh, you know, it's a good way to do things. Um, where things start to get a little dicey is with, uh, the Fastlane network. Uh, TFL started their own car uh, sharing, not sharing, car selling network. Uh, originally, they wanted to do just pickup trucks, and it sounds like the reception wasn't particularly great uh, to start. Um, they they sold uh, their their F250, heavily modified F250 on there for a pretty decent amount of coin, um, which, you know, good for them. 
but they're talking like, you know, they really want to drive people into this platform as an alternative to cars and bids and bring a trailer. And they, you know, talk about it in this way where it's like a celebration of the kind of people who watch their network and the kind of cars that they're into, which are largely trucks and um, off-road vehicles. And it, I don't know, it feels really scuzzy. And, you know, to hear one of the guys from the channel, you know, talk about in a different video to say, hey, you know, it's going to keep us afloat because they've they've talked a lot about during the COVID times how much their ad revenue has basically collapsed on YouTube um, where, you know, they were able to pay for a lot of stuff very easily uh, in the past. Now the viewership is down and the ad revenue is down and they're they're trying to find other means to you know, do this. But, you know, when you look at this kind of model, I guess, for selling cars, it just, I don't know, it's weird. It's just weird because, you know, they're, they're, you're selling a, a $10,000, you know, car on their thing. Great. They put you in contact with the person, hope the transaction goes through. And oh, by the way, you owe us 5% of the sale price of that vehicle. And, you know, 5% is not nothing on some of these cars and when you switch back all the way over to BAT uh where you know some of these cars are selling for tens you know high high five digit prices low six digit range uh it gets pretty weird like you know there's been definitely been accusations for people uh, at least on Twitter <laughs> about whether or not bring a trailer has become a money laundering scheme. Uh, I would love to have someone, anyone do some investigative reporting and find out if that is the case, because uh, it is absolutely bonkers, the kind of cash that they rake in uh, on that website these days. And I think they got bought out by someone recently to kind of capitalize on some of that market share. Um, but yeah, and then just knowing that Doug's there in the mix, doing the same kind of thing, you know, it, it was... It was very weird watching the video from him a few short weeks ago talking about the uh, Audi RS2 that he just bought. And he flagrantly announced that he spent $70,000 of his own money not only sourcing the RS2 in Europe, but getting it shipped to the United States and getting it certified uh, so that he can drive it here as the first Audi RS2 in the U.S. legally. And... I don't know, it just, it feels weird, and it, it, you got that, knowing he's got the $70,000 RS2, he's got the Ford GT, he's got the really weird Mercedes G-Wagon drop-top thing, he's got his brand new Discovery, he's got his old Range Rover, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in the Doug DeMiro universe of automotive, whatever, and, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's so wild, these car things, um, but you know, a fun game to play is just betting on where things go. And yeah, it's going to be weird to see how things shape up in the next year or so, I think, with Bring a Trailer and Cars and Bids and so many others. Because uh, as more competition comes in, there's going to be more of a pull to get certain platforms to carry certain kinds of cars. And maybe that's a good thing, having that kind of competition to do that. But um, I definitely think that's going to eventually mean that only one can survive and who the hell knows which one of those it's going to be. So, yeah. So the next thing I wanted to, oh, excuse me, talk about uh, in the uh, bad news of 2020 is uh, the Ram TRX 
and really truck culture on the whole. Uh, the Ram TRX, of course, is the Hellcat-powered Ram 1500 uh, with a pretty serious off-road bend. Uh, it's meant to be the Ford Raptor competitor uh, where, you know, you're going to go blast some sand dunes, do some, you know, light rock crawling, um, but really it eats away at basically any of the other capabilities that you would have with a pickup truck. Uh, payload goes out the window. Um, it's got a pretty good, uh, you know, cabin carrying capacity, but, you know, you can't really put anything in the bed and you can't really tow that much behind it either. Um, but the Hellcat, you know, it is what it is. And this is a truck that gets maybe 11 miles per gallon on a good day. Uh, this is a truck that, you know, you, you run over someone and there's a good chance they're dead. And that's kind of where the discourse has gone with pickup trucks is that, you know, as more and more people continue to spend higher and higher amounts of money on these things, they're getting weirder and weirder in the different ways that this market is going. And on the one hand, you've got the Hummer EV pickup truck and the F-150 EV, which I think are really good ways for them to go, um, but they're not decreasing the size of the pickup truck where we're having bigger and bigger issues with pedestrian or pedestrian accidents, car accidents, so many other things, because these trucks weigh, you know, better part of 8,000 pounds. Uh, you can't really stop them very quickly. You know, tire technology and brake technology can only do so much, and it's not like we're going to be fitting carbon ceramic brakes on a pickup truck anytime soon. Uh, and it's, it's bad, man. It's bad. And there's been a lot of pictures floating around on the internet about, you know, how big trucks were 20 years ago versus how big trucks are now. And whether or not that's justified, and, you know, I, I contributed to that discourse taking a picture of a of an old Ford, I think, what was that, a T100, parked next to a uh, Chevy Equinox, and it was dwarfed by the Chevy crossover, which is crazy to think, because the Equinox isn't even that big, and it kind of goes to show just where the market's gone, and how trucks have basically replaced the family sedan in many places, and we can talk for hours and hours and hours about whether or not you're getting your money for a, you know, 50, 60, 70, $80,000 quarter ton truck. Uh, and <laughs> you know, I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder. I can't fathom spending more than 40 grand, 40, 45 grand on a pickup truck. I think that's absolutely crazy. Um, I think it's, insane to really want anything bigger than a Toyota Tacoma or a Ford Ranger, but even they are give or take about the size of what the Tundra and the F-150 were, you know, 10-15 years ago, so eh, the market is weird, and you know, with all of this, it's going to be interesting to see how things change with fuel regulations, with uh, continued shift towards green energy, uh, hybridization, electrification, uh, because, you know, it's the way things are going. And I think, you know, if Ford can deliver a pickup truck that's got 300 miles of range that can charge in, you know, less than an hour, or at least most of the battery in less than an hour, and sell it for less than 50 grand, or right around 50 grand, I think they've kind of hit the nail on the head for where things need to be at to get people to go, hey, an electric pickup truck makes sense for me. Um, but until then, you know, people are still going to lust after these 700 plus horsepower crazy off-road nasty environmental not environmentally friendly thingamajigs and it's 
and the, again, it's just, it's scuzzy, it's gross, it feels bad, and it's weird. And, you know, if you want to blow that kind of money on a truck like that, you know, be my guest. But it's it really doesn't strike me as a good thing uh, as things are going through for, uh, yeah, 2020, to say the least. Um, yeah, so, small cars. I kind of talked about them at the beginning of this thing, uh, and... The death of the small car is definitely here. Uh, we lost a bunch within the past uh, 12 to 18 months. And uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about it after remembering that both the Honda Fit, the Chevy Sonic uh, are gone this year. Um, the Fiat 500 was gone last year. The Ford Fiesta was gone last year. Um, how there's nothing left in the small car market, uh, even the Yaris is gone after this year, and I guess outside of the Kia Rio and the Hyundai Elantra, not the Elantra, excuse me, the Accent, there's not a subcompact car really available, and it just feels so strange to think about that, because, you know, less than a decade ago, this was a segment that was on fire. Ford couldn't build enough Fiestas at one point to meet demand. Like, they were churning things out so quick. And not only could you buy a Fiesta for, like, 15 grand, you could get that thing all loaded all the way up into the mid-20s. Uh, not even, like, an ST. Like, a fully loaded titanium model with leather seats, heated leather seats, all the fancy, nice touchscreen, blah 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 stuff. And... You know, a lot of people thought that was the way of the future because uh, fuel was so expensive and people recognized that they needed to downsize and get, you know, 40 miles per gallon uh, to be able to make their commute to work worth money. And it, it just seems so strange that that went away seemingly so quickly <laughs> in the past uh, couple of years. And... You know, this was a very competitive market up until about three or four years ago, and then they were gone. They just evaporated overnight, and I'm I'm happy that Hyundai and Kia and Nissan seem to be sticking with it. Um, I'm I'm happy that Toyota hasn't completely abandoned it yet, but um, time's kind of ticking on the clock there. Um, yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before all the compacts are mostly gone. Uh, I don't think the Civic or the Corolla will ever leave us, but, you know, obviously all the American compacts are already gone. The European ones I don't think are long for this world here in the U.S. It just, yeah, it, it, it's going to be weird seeing all these things become compact crossovers. And, you know, there's, of course, the argument, you know, is there really that much of a difference between a compact car and a subcompact crossover or a compact crossover? Yes and no. I mean, some of them truly are just tall hatchbacks. You know, I was reflecting parked next to uh, a co-worker's of mine's uh, Jeep Compass the other day. You know, it's really not that much bigger than a normal-sized car. Like, if you really think about it, it's really not. You know, it sits pretty low to the ground once you get in it. And what kind of excuses are are we really going to make to justify that in, in terms of existence? You know, it's kind of like the difference between a Subaru Impreza and an Impreza uh, Crosstrek. 
you know, it just rides up a little bit higher. Like it's less than half of an inch in terms of like ride height increase. Um, it's almost all the same body panels. It's, it's exactly the same on the inside. And yet it feels worse to get in the Crosstrek versus a regular Impreza hatchback. For what? You did this for what? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, this discourse I think is going to go on for the next couple of years. My hope is that some car company is going to go, hey, look, we're actually selling a lot of these and that people eventually rush back to the compacts, subcompacts uh, in the lineup. But I think we're a long, long ways down the line for that to be happening anytime soon. So yeah, downer stuff out of the way. Uh, after the bump, we're going to talk about some uh, general things that were exciting about 2020 and uh, kind of lead into the end of the episode. So be back in just a moment. So hey, a bit of so-and-so stuff about 2020 that uh, I think is kind of worth touching on that's uh, both positive and negative. Uh, kind of a mix of things. Well, kicking things off with Formula One. Uh, Formula One, I had talked about doing a whole episode about I don't think I can do it justice. Uh, the general sense for me for Formula One in 2020 is that they did an amazing job with what they had. And I genuinely feel like the genie is out of the bottle uh, when it comes to race formats, locales, driver switches, everything. And I don't know if Liberty Media and the FIA can ever put it back in the bottle. Uh, by that I mean, you know, with how unpredictable race weekends were, um, with how insane some of the scheduling was in different locations, um, with the track format switches, with so many different variables kind of being thrown at different things to make things entertaining. They ended up creating a season that was arguably one of the best in recent memory. Uh, I've been watching Formula One fairly regularly since like 2008 or 9-ish. Um, but like full, full time since the uh, powertrain switch in 2014. And uh, yeah, it's 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 been... A very good season. I can think of one race only that was like truly, truly bad, and that was of course Yas Marina. And Yas Marina is already a track I hate to begin with, so <laughs> thumbs down. But um, you know, what I mean, just what a season. You know, there was that moment where Lewis Hamil Hamilton didn't necessarily seem like he was gonna be the world champion from the outset. You know, Botas was doing really well, and then there was, you know, obviously the COVID stuff with him, and then you know. I don't know. It, it, it was just absolutely mind-bogglingly crazy. Uh, the stuff with Nico Hulkenberg coming in at the last second and scoring big points for Racing Point was absolutely incredible. Uh, to see Hulkenberg, you know, come back into sport, I think was something that I truly wished for. Obviously, that's not happening uh, for 2021, which is a big disappointment. Um, you know, the, the, the step up for McLaren... Historically, my favorite Formula One team has been incredible to watch these past few seasons. Um, Renault turning it back around and, you know, making me feel very good about being a part-time Renault fan uh, was great. Uh, continually struggling to be a primary Haas fan. Uh, it, it is 
only gotten worse with the Mazepin scandal uh, after the season ended uh, with the groping of the young woman on Instagram and nothing happening uh, has been pretty disgusting. I'm sure we'll talk more about that as time goes on and we near the 2021 Formula 1 season. Uh, Vettel dipping out of Ferrari to go to Aston Martin seems like a smart play with how good of a season Racing Point had this year. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like it's, I, I think this season is going to be tough to beat for a while. But knowing what we know this year, going into next year with the driver changes, with the continued advancement of the midfield teams, uh, I think Red Bull is going to have its hands full next year uh, as the number two team because Racing Point has gotten so good. And with Aston Martin money behind it, I think it's going to get really interesting in that 2-3 thing. Uh, Renault really seems to have their head screwed on straight, and I think they're going to be challenging for a top spot. Um, getting Fernando Alonso back in the car is super exciting for me as a Fernando Alonso fan. Um, you know, Schumacher being in at Haas hopefully can turn some things in the right direction for them. Uh, you know, Danny Rick being at McLaren is really where I'm excited because I love Danny Rick. He's a great driver. He's a great personality. Being at McLaren, again, historically, my favorite Formula One team. Also very exciting. Uh, they're switching to Mercedes power next season. Very exciting uh, because of the historical matchup between those two brands. Um, I I think it's going to be good for me as a fan of midfield and backfield teams. Um, I don't think there's any question that Mercedes is probably going to win the Manufacturers and Drivers Championship next year. Um but yeah, I guess time will tell. We'll see where things go. Um, we're still a few weeks out from testing, which seems absolutely insane to say uh, as we get ready to start the new year. Um, next thing I kind of want to touch on is uh, the Nissan 400Z and the second generation Subaru BRZ. Um, we've talked a bit about the Nissan on the podcast. I don't remember if we talked about the BRZ really at all. Um, but it's good to know that there are still going to be affordable performance cars coming out in the next year or two. Uh, the BRZ seems to be an evolution of the current car, um, slightly larger in a few dimensions uh, with a little bit more power. Uh, curious to know which engine they're using under the hood. Still haven't announced whether or not they're going to be doing a Toyota version of the car. Um, seems fairly likely at this point. Uh, but the BRZ, you know, not my pick of the two, but it's a very good car. It's a very good performance value. Uh, it serves a very specific purpose at Subaru, and I think in the Japanese car segment as a whole, um, it's good counter-programming to the MX-5. And I, I really am excited to see where the car can go. Um, I'm hoping that it doesn't include a huge leap in price. It's anybody's guess as to whether or not that will happen, but... Uh, yeah, it's good to know for about 30 grand, you can still get a pretty good performance bargain. And the 400Z, on the other hand, is kind of the next step up in a different way. Um, but I like the general messaging that the 400Z is giving, where it seems like it's going to be a fairly lightweight performance sports coupe from Nissan for not a whole lot of money. And as much as I fear that that 400Z name suggests that it's going to be a twin turbo three and a half liter or three liter v6 whatever it ends up however it ends up working out uh probably means a big jump in price it's still going to be a lot cheaper than an 
probably the Supra. And knowing that the Supra is still saddled with that BMW tech underneath probably also means the Nissan's going to be cheaper to run long-term than the Supra will be. And as much as I do like the 2.0-liter Supra, uh, I really waned a bit in my liking of the 3.0-liter Supra. And uh, maybe the Nissan can kind of fill that hole. Now, I am hoping that Nissan maybe considers doing a lower trim model. This has been kind of the, the murmur online is that a 2.0-liter turbo Nissan, maybe called the 200Z, could be a possibility. And I think if that's the case, just like with the Supra, it's the better option to get the four-cylinder model. Um, and that, again, could be a very interesting placement against the Mustang with the EcoBoost, which is the top-selling sports car in Europe uh, this past year. So, you know, anything can happen. And I think when there are dollars to be won in different segments, you know, you can see some very interesting placements by other brands uh, as time moves on. So those are two things I'm going to be watching pretty carefully as we move into the next year. Um, yeah, so the last thing I kind of want to talk about is uh, cheap electric cars. Uh, not only are they coming from different manufacturers, and I think there's going to be a lot of pressure in the coming uh, 12, 18, 24 months from Chinese brands and from Chinese subsidi subsidiaries of current car companies that sell vehicles in the United States. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a flood coming of affordable EVs to the used car market. And it is particularly exciting because it's giving a lot of people the opportunity to dip their toes into this segment of the market. And as much as we've talked about the tipping point for you know, actual car sales when it comes to, you know, batteries being cheap enough, range being good enough, and the prices being low enough for people to go, oh, it makes more sense for me to buy a $35,000 Tesla than a $35,000 Toyota Camry. You know, there's still a lot of people who can't afford a $35,000 car and instead are shopping a $10,000, $12,000 car, or in some case, you know, thinking about Bradley Brownell uh, from Twitter, from Jalopnik, from so many others, from Radwood. You know, he's got a $2,200 Nissan Leaf that is rad as hell that, you know, has 50 miles of range, but, you know, has almost no maintenance and has almost no fuel costs and has, you know, basically no running costs. And that, I think, is going to be the really interesting spot where EVs are going in the marketplace in the next year or so because so many Nissan Leafs are getting to be dirt cheap. Uh, Chevrolet Volts, like my own, are getting to be very cheap. Uh, early versions of pretty much every EV that's out there are going to start to kind of loosen up in the marketplace. And, you know, as we've seen the Fiat 500e go for less than eight grand, down to five grand now, probably next year. Um, I think you're going to start making some believers out of folks. And I'm hoping that that kind of will start to change the dialogue about charging infrastructure um, you know, parking infrastructure, so many other things. And, you know, I know we need to encourage people to ride their bikes and to walk more and to not use their car. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there needs to be a more charging infrastructure in parking places all across this country. And it's inexcusable as to why there is not, uh, because it doesn't take up any space. It's only going to bring more customers to your business. It's only going to give you a better rapport with your employees who are able to charge their cars for free at work. Uh, it's, it's taking some changes in mindsets and other things. And 
as EVs continue to get more affordable, I think we're going to start seeing more demand from folks uh, in this segment. And yeah, I'm I'm just hoping for good things. And, you know, I'm eager to see where some of these prices start landing on some of these cars. Um, the Chevrolet Bolt has already gotten pretty cheap on the used car market. Uh, two or three-year-old cars with, you know, less than 30,000 miles are in the mid to low teens now in price when that was a $40,000 car brand new. Uh, the BMW i3 is getting very, very cheap. Uh, pretty well-maintained, less than 50,000-mile battery electric i3s are well under twenty grand. I think they're getting as low as like thirteen in some cases, depending on how many miles you've got. Uh, Rex models are a little bit more, but you know, pick pick which one works best for you. Uh, the Ionic is one I'm keeping an eye on to see where those start going to. We're starting to see Kia Soul EVs show up here in the Midwest. Those are selling for the low to mid teens. Um, there's a lot of good options out there, and you know, it's it's going to come down to you know, how you can charge, where you can charge, and how fast your car can charge for how much money. And in those kind of circumstances, you know, something like the Kia Soul EV starts to make a lot of sense because it does have a pretty good fast charging system. Uh, and there are still are a lot of fast charging systems that work with that car all across the country. Um, something like the Volt, you know, works for a lot of people who need to drive longer distances, like myself. Um, as much as the car can't suck down the right amount of juice for me to make it the most useful vehicle in the world, um, you know, I can still run it on gas and it works out pretty great for me. Um, the Fiat 500e continues to, I think, be the benchmark uh, in terms of what I think I would want if I was going to buy an electric car tomorrow. Um, knowing that you can get a Fiat 500e for less than eight grand uh, that has, you know, the better part of 100 miles of electric range. Uh, is, I think, just about perfect for most people. I think it's just a matter of folks, you know, realizing how far they don't drive each day, how easily they have access to a plug, and how they can probably top that car off overnight without thinking twice about it. Um, and you spending fractions, fractions of the cost to gas your car up at the gas pump uh, to plug it in in a 110-volt charger you know, out your garage or out the window of your kitchen or however your house may or may not be set up. Um, it's staggering when you start to consider how low cost these things are uh, and what a godsend that could potentially be for someone, you know, uh, who has a less than great, you know, car history. You know, I, 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 I can't stress it enough. You know, if you buy a five to $8,000, I don't know, pick a car, uh, Nissan Altima versus a five to $8,000 Nissan Leaf, the amount of savings that you're going to have at the end of the first year just running the Leaf versus the Altima, you know, in terms of repairs, in terms of oil changes, in terms of tire rotations, in terms of uh, seemingly everything, it, it goes upside down pretty quick on how the Nissan makes, the Nissan Leaf makes more sense than an Altima. Yes, it's a smaller car, but like, Man, it's 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 crazy, and it's it's one of those things that one of these days I'm gonna have to do, I don't know, a video of or something <laughs> to to lay this out because it is just insane, and I I just hope more people kind of get on the bandwagon and start trying it out for themselves because you know with EVs getting so cheap, it is a pretty low cost of entry, it's a low cost of operation, um, 
yeah, I mean, I guess you're taking a gamble on long-term, you know, viability of the battery and so on, but uh, a lot of these battery packs, aside from the Nissan Leaf, uh, have proven to be pretty long-lasting and not losing a lot of their range and not losing a lot of their, you know, overall efficiency. And, you know, if that's the case, again, mm, it makes sense. So, yeah. But anyway, guys, uh, after the bump, we'll kind of wrap things up and head off into 2021. Be back in just a moment. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. Uh, if you want to follow along with me doing general things on the internet, you can do so at twitter.com slash Y-S-S-M-A-N. And you can follow along with episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash salvage title. Uh, thank you for listening when you have listened. Thank you for engaging when you have engaged. Um, we're going to keep plugging along on these things for the foreseeable future. Uh, and... Yeah, maybe do a little bit more with the show. Maybe change the name, maybe rebrand it. There's a lot of opportunities in 2021 to do new and different things. And, you know, we're just considering them all at this point. But uh, it's getting late here uh, in Michigan. Uh, and uh, I need to go talk to my girlfriend and my dog before the night is over. So I hope that you have a good rest of your night. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And uh, we will see you next year on the Salvage Title Podcast. See you then.